as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go to meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon and from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is within me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by my enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony, and my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, Where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him my Savior, and my God. This is the Word of God. May Him be praised. Please keep your finger on this text as we expound this. Let, let's pray, shall we? Let's ask God for help as we look into His Word. Father, we ask that You illumine our mind and You inspire our hearts over these words. You've written them down for our learning. So Father, we pray that you, you grant us your Spirit's illumination, we pray. Your word is a lamp to, my, to our feet and a light to our path. And so shed light, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there are times in your life and there are times in my life when depression, discouragement and disillusionment has a way of taking a strong grip on our lives. So much so that there are times when depression and disillusion come in such a strong way that, that we want to end our lives. I'm not sure whether you face that. And maybe some of you are too young to have gone through that sort of dark corridors of your life. But at least, there are at least four men in the Bible who came to the point where they wanted to die. Moses, Elijah, Job, and the fourth one you all know so well because we've just spent four weeks with him, five weeks, Jonah. Moses was leading a huge congregation, a strange congregation, a congregation that congregates in the desert, and he finds himself caught 
between the grumbling of the people and the anger of his God. And he's depressed, he's, depressed, he's burning out. And he says, the burden is far too heavy for me. Let me die, he says to the Lord, that I might not see my wretchedness. He's feeling depressed. He's feeling helpless. And you all remember Elijah so well, that, that great passage in Second Kings 18, 19. He has just had this great victory on Mount Carmel against the 850 uh, Baal prophets. And then comes along this evil queen, Jezebel, and Elijah just collapses physically and emotionally exhausted. And he says, it is enough, Lord, take my life. All these are men of God. And yet they, has the, 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 they all had this suicidal desperation. You know, closer to our own time, it is a sad reality that uh, there have been a number of pastors who have taken their own lives. Some of them have come from very large, growing, thriving evangelical church. One pastor actually shot himself in the baptismal pool of his church. And recently in the X29 network, two pastors committed suicide within the span of two short years. And a recent study, very disturbing study, a recent study came out saying that 70% of pastors constantly fight depression in their line of work. You know, last Sunday, after church, just out there having a cup of coffee, one of you asked me a question that I haven't been asked for the last eight years. One of you, you asked me, who is your support, Pastor? Who is your support? It's a good question. Just that question alone encouraged me tremendously. Because I've never been asked those kind of questions. Now the situation for many pastors just reveals how very close many of them come to harming themselves. And part of the reason part of the reason is that everything a pastor does is deemed to be wrong by someone in the congregation. And so they look for comfort. People look for comfort. People look for release from their burden. A study of nine people who survived a suicidal deep a suicidal leap from the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco. And it's amazing that people can survive that sort of leap. I'm given to believe that it's a height of 230 meters. 230 meters. How do you survive a leap of that sort? And nine people who survive jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, a study of those nine people found that none of them really, truly wanted to die. None of them. All they wanted was for their inner pain to stop. They wanted some kind of an instant relief. Then another study of 153 almost lethal suicidal attempts, mostly with guns, these are people aged between 13 and 34, 
found that 70% of these people have said that the interval between deciding to kill themselves and actually attempting it was less than an hour. And an, an, an astonishing 24% picked that interval as less than five minutes. That's the interval between deciding to kill themselves and actually doing something about it. Five minutes. These people were truly impulsive. Why am I making all this point? The point I want to make is this. Life is hard. And many people come very close to reaching the end of their tether. Jerry Sitzer has a book called A Grace Disguised, How the Soul Grows Through Loss. In that book, he tells us of the grief he had to face. He describes how his wife came home one day enjoying a new confidence about her role as a mother of four children and as a musician in their church. And they had heard that very same day that they had been approved of adopting a fourth child, another child. And this is what Jerry wrote. Lydia returned home from choir rehearsal at 10 p.m. We had hot chocolate and crawled into bed together where we talked and laughed until 12.30 a.m. At the end of our conversation, she said to me, Jerry, I can't imagine life better than it is right now. It is so wonderful to me. I'm overcome by the goodness of God. Less than one day later, she was dead. In fact, in that one single day, Jerry Sitzer lost not only his wife, he lost his mother and his daughter. They were all killed in an instant in a car accident. And this is what Jerry writes. The accident set off a silent scream of pain inside my soul. That scream was so loud I could hardly hear another sound. Not for a long time. And I could not imagine that I would hear any sound but that scream of pain for the rest of my life. The point is this. Jerry Sitzer survived that horrendous dark corridor that he had to walk through to write that book, A Grace Disguised. And the question is this. How do people who have gone through such horrendous pain in their lives pull through. You know, things fall apart in our lives. Relationships, health, finance. We've all got to endure hard times. But how may we endure hard times without caving in? And this is what I want for us to derive our how-to from this psalm. Because this psalm is written by one of the sons of Korah. Korah was a priest from the tribe of Levi and he gives us four ways to survive very dark and difficult times. Four ways, all derived from this psalm. First thing he does, the first thing he does, he calls out to God, he cries out to God. 
that's verse 1 and 2, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go to meet with God? Now I've read this verse hundreds and hundreds of times, this, this, this first, two, first two verses at least, and I'm sure you have as well. And, and I would always be discouraged when I read Psalms 42 verse 1. Because I, I don't measure up. I know that I don't measure up. I don't paint after, after God like this psalmist paints for God. I can't describe my pursuit of God as, as one that paints after him like a deer paints for the living brook. I've never felt that I could measure up to this super saint, whoever it was who wrote this psalm. He sets the bar so high. And I've always thought that uh, this guy has this such a consuming desire for God. He pans after God. And, 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 and for years, that is what I thought. For years, I thought that that verse was actually teaching us to grow a consuming hunger for God. Later on, I found that I was wrong. This verse isn't teaching us that. This verse is not telling us to live like him. This verse is not describing a super saint who pants after God. I came to see that the reason why he cries out to God like that is for a very practical reason. I came to see that he longs for God because like those damaged pastors, he longs for relief. Like those guys who leap off the bridge, he longs for relief. His cry is so passionate because his depression is so horrendous. That was what I came to discover. Look at verse ten and 9 and 10. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by my enemies? My bones suffer mortal agony. My foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? This is perhaps one of the hardest things to do, and that is this, and that will help you survive your depression. And that is this first point, calling out to God. I've just said that it's the hardest thing to do because why would you want to call out to someone who has just apparently turned himself away from you? To the psalmist, it would look like God has turned his back on him and walked away from him. Now why would you want to call out to someone who apparently has turned away from you. It's a hard thing to do. It's a difficult thing to do. He says in verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night. It tells us two things. He's not eating. When someone says, My tears have been my food, it, it means he's just eating salt. He's just eating, drinking salt water. He's not having any other nutrition. So this guy is not eating. Neither is he sleeping. Day and night, he says. Loss of sleep, loss of appetite. Now, I don't know if this is jolting any one of you at this time. Maybe some of you are going through some horrendous thing at this time. You've been asking God for something, perhaps, but all you hear is a deafening silence. You pray for something that is dear to your heart, but you're not getting it. You pray for an illness to go away, but the illness gets worse. You trust him for a job, 
But interview after interview, you have been denied the job. And the devil comes to you, especially in the small wee hours of the morning, and says to you, where now is your God? Where is the promise of his coming? So this, this is difficult, because sometimes God appears silent. The widow of Nain got her son back. Other, mo- other mothers do not get their children back. Peter got out of prison, John the Baptist perished in prison. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but the Virgin Mary didn't see his son released from captivity. Elijah was swept into heaven with fiery horses, but Joseph ended up in a coffin in Egypt. Paul healed many other people, but the thorn on his flesh was never taken away. And yet we are asked to call upon God in those times. It is very hard. But I have found to my own understanding now that the first step out of my depression, the first step out of my disillusionment, hard as it is, is to open my mouth and really call out to God. There is no other recourse. Really, there is no other recourse than to call out to God. So like this psalmist, the first thing we learn in the depth of our problem is to learn to call out, to cry out to God, reluctant as our sound, the sound of our cries may sound. First thing. Second thing we see him doing is this. Against all evidence, he goes on trusting God. Now this is something really hard. Against all evidences that are stacked up against the fact that God is good, he goes on trusting God. Look at verse 8. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. In verse 5 he says, Hope in God. Drop your finger now to verse 11. Hope in God again. This is very strange. He's got everything thrown at him perhaps including the kitchen sink. And yet he deliberately, intentionally, he chooses to believe that God can be trusted. And I submit to you this afternoon that this is the second thing you must do when you face depression and disillusionment and disappointment. Go on trusting and believing God. This reminds me of Job. Job, I don't have to remind you, has been hit real hard. Everything he ever owned was taken away from him and he was thrown into a dark hole, so to speak. And it would look as if God had thrown him into this dark pit and walked away and forgotten about him. But even when there seems to have been no one out there listening to him, Job kept on insisting that God is there. Even at the point where it appears as if God had isn't there anymore. He keeps on trusting God. Remember, he stands up one day in his struggle and he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. Now this is where the greatness of Job lies. The greatness of Job does not lie in his ability to endure suffering. The greatness of Job does not lie in his strange ability to argue with God. The greatness of Job lies in the fact that even though God has been silent, 
he does not lose his grip on God. That's where the greatness of Job lies. He may appear to have questioned God, but the flame in his heart was never extinguished, never. Now what keeps people like Job from flagging is this stubborn belief that no matter what life may throw at me, God can be trusted. I've been proven on that point before by God. Let me say this to you. God loves to use human people like you. Every one of you. God loves to use human people like you. But invariably, invariably when God wants to use a person, God will always first test that person. But what's more, whenever God tests that person, God would always test a person on the point of trust. Always, right through scripture, in the face of the unknown, he proved Abraham on the point of trust. In the face of the Ninevites, he proved Jonah on the point of trust. In the face of the Egyptians, he proved Moses on the point of trust. In the face of the, of, of the Midianites, now you tell me who, in the face of the Midianites, he proved Gideon on the point of trust. And you tell me the next one too. In the face of the Assyrians, he proved Hezekiah on the point of trust. Again and again and again, when God wants to use an individual, he first proves him true. And he proves that person to be true always on the point of trust. Sometimes in my fertile imagination, I imagine that there must have been names that should have been written in holy writ, but have not been written in holy scriptures, because at that very point of trust, they faded, wilted, caved in, succumbed, and was never recorded in human history. So here is what the psalmist is doing. He bangs his life on the fact that God can be trusted, even in the darkest hours. So that's the second point. First point, cry out to God. Second point, against all odds, trust God. Third point, he does a third thing. Now it would be very strange when you hear this. He actually preaches to himself. Having cried out to God, he doesn't just sit idle. He waits, or, or, or just waits for God to deliver him. No. He starts doing something really strange. He starts talking to himself. He says to himself, verse 5, no, verse 5 is him talking to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And drop your finger down to verse 11. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Now what's exactly happening here? Why is he talking to himself? Is he losing a few screws? <laughs> no, he's, he's not getting crazy. No, 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 no. He's very much in control of his faculties. 
he deliberately chooses to talk to himself. He's talking to himself for one purpose. He's talking back to himself. He's talking hope back into himself. A lot of you have heard of Martin Lloyd-Jones, and many of you know him to be a great preacher. But perhaps a few of you know that before he became a preacher, he was a physician. And he was a very good physician at that, before he went into the ministry. And that is why of all people, he is most qualified to write a book called Spiritual Depression. Now in that book, please listen very carefully, this is what he says. I suggest, he says, I suggest that the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression is that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. S-E-L-F. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to your S-E-L-F, self, instead of talking back to yourself? Now, Lloyd-Jones actually talks about this very psalm, Psalm 42, in that book, Spiritual Depression. And talking about this psalm, this is what he says. Now this man, meaning the writer of this psalm, instead of allowing his self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. His soul has been repressing him, crushing him, so he stands up and he says, Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. And this is what he says. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in your hand. You have to address yourself, question yourself, preach to yourself. Now, years before preaching the gospel to yourself became a popular concept, Martin Lloyd-Jones had already taught it. And centuries before that, the psalmist practiced it. In fact, Lloyd-Jones goes far, so far as to say that this is the heart of wisdom in this matter. And this is what the psalmist does. He catches himself by the scruff of his neck and he talks to himself. Can you imagine you doing this? And this is what Martin Lloyd-Jones recommends that we do. That when you are listening to yourself for too long, you get very depressed. There must come a day when you should be able to stand up, catch your S-E-L-F by the scruff of its neck, and say, look, soul, you've been talking to me long enough. I've had enough of you talking to me. You keep quiet just for once, and let me now talk back to you. And you start talking back to yourself. And you say, I command you now, self, hope in God. I would not allow all that is happening to me to devastate me. Because I believe that God is good. I believe that we can hope in God. I believe that God can be trusted. I will have to remind you that although all these bad things have fallen on my head, God remains faithful, loving, merciful and good. You see, you need to talk to your soul like that. Oh soul, God is faithful. God is good. Remember Packer? Packer insists that the only way to know God 
is for us to recall the character of God. Only then, Packer says, can you be bold for God and can you be content in God. And I've, I've discovered to my own advantage that people who walk consistently well with God are people who recount the goodness of God. They take a long they take huge chunks of time in a given week to recite the character of God as it is spelled out in the gospel. In other words, they are talking to themselves, they are preaching to themselves. They are, say, they are saying to their S-E-L-F, God is very good. God can be trusted. God is wise. God is powerful. You know, there is no other way for you to come out of your spiritual depression You've got to tell yourself that in spite of the fact that the sky has fallen on your head, God remains sovereign. You've got to tell yourself that in spite of the fact that the sky has fallen on your head, God is powerful, faithful, loving, merciful, and compassionate. This is the only way to stay above your depression. And that is to keep telling yourself, keep talking to yourself who God is. There is a fourth thing he does. He recalls the past. He looks back. Now I'm very careful as a pastor over the years when I've asked people to look back. Why? Because there is a kind of looking back that will kill you. It happened to who in the Bible? She looked back and it killed her. Lot's wife. She looked back and she was turned into a pillar of salt. There is a kind of looking back that will kill you. I have had men coming up to me and tell me that they so much as walk in the streets and pass by a woman, the whiff of her perfume would bring him back many years back. Because that same perfume that someone he used to know used to wear and just a whiff of that perfume would bring them back to another month of depression and pain and sadness there is a kind of looking back that is not good There are places that some people have told me they will never visit again. Because to, to enter that very town just brings back too much memories. So I've, I hope I've made this point. There is a kind of looking back that's not good. But having said that, there's a kind of looking back that we are commanded to do. Tell me, who is that who looked back? It was, it was the beginning of his life putting it back in order, the prodigal son. It was when he remembers that in his father's house there is enough food even for the male and female servants. He says, I will rise, I will go to my father, and I will say to my father, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your child. Make me as one of your servants. Remember that? He was keeping pigs. He was eating the ports that were fed to the pigs. 
and suddenly he remembers his mother's, his father's house. So there is a kind of remembering that is good. Here, right in the thick of his depression, he looks back and he remembers the time when he would go to, the, to worship in the temple of the Lord. Look at verse 4. He's remembering. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go to the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with shouts of songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Did you know that he writes this song away from Israel? He's no longer with them as he writes this. Many, many scholars would admit that they do not know where he's writing this psalm from. But wherever he's writing this psalm from, he's not writing from a good place. He's physically removed from the temple of God. We do not know where he is, but he's far away from where he should be. He's isolated from people who worship God. You know something? Part of his depression may come partly from him isolating himself with other worshippers. Because verse 4 says, I remember how I used to walk among the crowds of worshippers. And look at verse 6. I remember you from the land of Jordan and from Hermon, from Mount Mizar. He's saying, I remember you from the land of Jordan. It tells us that where he is now, at the time of writing, he's not in Jordan. He's not in Israel. He's somewhere out there in a foreign land. And that's the drama. He's away from the place of worship. And, and that's part of the reason why he's so depressed. He's away from people who are worshipping God. We don't know why and how he got to such a place. But the point I want to make is this. You need people. He knows it. He looks back with nostalgia. He longs for it. He longs for the pilgrim feast, a time when everyone came together and worshipped together and sing together and sacrificed together. And this is perhaps the point where many of us have failed because we live in an individualistic culture and many people stay away from church, stay away from small groups, stay away from home groups. Modern people tend to believe that they can be strong all by themselves. Now this is not something that is happening to Christians only. Do you not know that modern Hindus are staying away from the temple? Have you not heard that? Modern Hindus are no longer going to the temple. And older Hindus are having to face this problem with younger Hindus. And modern Sikhs are not, are not going anymore to the, to the Gurdwara, the gateway to the Guru. Not, young Sikhs are not going to the Guru, guru Rawas, the, the, the Gurdwaras anymore. And young Muslims, young Muslims are no longer going to the mosque. So this is not a, a thing that plagues only Christians, but each one of them is saying, I can be a good Hindu without going to the temple. I can be a good Muslim without going to the mosque. I can, good, I can be a good Sikh without going to the Gurdwara. I can be a good Christian without going to the church. And yet it is totally antithetical to all of Islam, to all of Sikhism, to all of Hinduism, to all of Judaism, to all of Christianity. 
And if I may add, this spirit is totally antithetical to common sense as well. How do you know you are right all by yourself, sitting at home? How do you know that you are right all by yourself? How do you know that you can stay true to God? How do you stay devoted to God all by yourself? How can you stay committed and devoted to God all by yourself? Quite often, the reason for our spiritual depression comes from isolating ourselves from other people. The spirit of fierce individualism. Some of you have preferred to be in your own Mount Miza, and yet you scratch your head and wonder why you are so depressed. Who is it that you're sharing lives with? Who is it that's praying for you? Who is it that you're talking to? Who is it that you're walking with? Who is it that is quite ready at a drop of, a, of the hat to come and listen to you? Do you have friends like that? The psalmist once had this. Past tense. He no longer has this. So he's depressed. And so he looks back. And you know something? It is this looking back that starts his journey back to faith. So four things I leave with you this afternoon. If you're not in a good place, if you're quite depressed, if you're quite disillusioned with things, imitate the psalmist. Number one, cry out to God. Number two, in spite of the evidences, go on trusting Him. Number three, preach to yourself. And number four, look back, recall, and remember God. Life is hard. All of us have got our grief. But if we don't do something about it, we will remain in our, in our grief. So let us be like this psalmist. Catch hold of ourselves. Cry out to God. Keep on trusting Him. Preach the character of God to ourselves. And recall God's goodness to us in the past. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your word that is preserved for us to this day. This psalm has been written so many years ago, and yet when you look at it afresh, you speak to us from it. Father, I pray that this word will not just go down and go out of the other side of our ears, but that, Father, in our depression, in our discouragement, we will learn to cry out to you. We will learn to go on trusting you. We will go on to preach your character to ourselves. And we will recall the past. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.